Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, let's take our copies of Scripture now and open to the Old Testament book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1. As I announced last week, we are beginning a new series of sermons today. Each summer, we plan a, a series through an Old Testament book. Last summer, we spent the summer Sundays in the book of Psalms, walking through those Psalms of Ascent. And this summer, the plan is to walk through the 12 chapters of the book of Daniel. I'm excited about it. Hope you are too, because Daniel's such a truly amazing book. At the same time, it encourages, inspires, informs, challenges us. It proclaims the sovereignty of God. It encourages us because like Daniel, we too can live lives that honor and please the Lord, even in a culture and in a society that opposes our beliefs and values. It inspires us because these are real life people. It relates biographical and historical accounts of men like Daniel and his three friends standing firm in their, in their convictions, even when it costs them everything. It informs us what has happened in the past and what will happen in the future. So we have historical narrative and we have prophecy all wrapped up in one book. And it challenges us because even Daniel confessed that some of the things that he wrote were confusing to him and hard for him to understand. And it's not an easy book. So you're going to have to think deeply as we walk through the book of Daniel. But as I said, ultimately its theme is that it proclaims the sovereignty of God. God is in control on every page. But to understand the book of Daniel requires us to set the context. And that's really all we have time to do this morning. I want to set the context and the setting of the book of Daniel and Lord willing, um, the Sundays following, we will take one chapter each Sunday. So the question then that the title of the message, which is how did we get here, uh, seeks to answer is not only how did Daniel and his friends end up in Babylon, but, but how did we as Christians get to the place that we are in our society? It's important to remember this great theme of Daniel, of God's sovereignty, because the circumstances especially at the beginning of the book of Daniel, would seem to indicate that Daniel's God, Jehovah, is not sovereign. So let's read from Daniel chapter 1, the first two verses, and I think you'll get my meaning. Scripture says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now, right away, we see God's sovereignty in our tragedy. Those first two verses that I just read, carved out by themselves, would seem to indicate that God and his plan of redemption had been lost, had been thwarted. Now you do remember God's plan, don't you? Remember that he chose one man out of all of his creation, a man named Abram who lived in a place called Ur of the Chaldees. And he told him to go to a place that he would show him. And he made certain promises to him, a covenant, if you will, with him. 
And one of those covenant promises is that he was going to make a great nation from his seed. And that nation, of course, is the nation of Israel. And through that nation, he would send a redeemer. And that redeemer would bless the whole world. And of course, that redeemer is Christ. And that blessing to the whole world is salvation. And so it seems like that plan has been upset. Seems like all has lost. The nation of Israel has gone into rebellion against God and his word. They've ignored his repeated warnings through his prophets. And now judgment has come just as he predicted it would. Now the first warning about what would happen if the nation of Israel ultimately turned their back on God was given through Moses. That's found in Deuteronomy chapter 30, beginning in verse 15. And let me read what Moses said to the nation right before they went into the promised land. He said, see, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. And that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you're entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. Now, of course, Moses was a prophet and he speaks prophetically here. And this is, of course, is exactly what happened. God had spared Israel from Egyptian bondage. He had miraculously provided for them in the wilderness for 40 years. And now they're going to a land that God has promised to them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And he says, just be faithful to me. Don't worship these false idols and you will be long in the land. But of course, that's not what happened. Very soon after Moses died, Joshua led them in the promised land. He defeated many of their enemies before them. And yet they adopted the practices, the value systems, and indeed the idols of that land. And so God is patient, merciful, and slow to anger. Over a period of hundreds of years, he sent prophet after prophet to warn them to turn back to God, else they would be destroyed by their enemies. They refused to listen. And ultimately this prediction came to pass. This is tragic. It's always a tragedy when God's people fail to obey his warnings. Last Sunday morning, we looked at some warnings that the Lord Jesus gave his disciples not to be like the Pharisees. And when God's people neglect and fail to obey warnings that God gives them, it leads to tragedy. That is what's happened to the nation of Israel. Let's look specifically now at the context of Daniel's tragedy. He had been taken far from home. We call this entire epic of history in the life of Israel, the Babylonian captivity. And it really came in three waves. Daniel apparently and his friends were taken in the first wave in, in about 605 BC. Two other waves came where they would take prisoners from Israel and haul them off to Babylon. And it was far cry from the glory days of Israel. You remember that uh, God gave to them this land, as I said, which was a, a fruitful and a fertile land. He chased their enemies out before them. And then a kingdom was established through Saul. 
And Saul was not faithful. And so God gave this kingdom to his servant, David. And then David had a dynasty after him, his son, Solomon. And it was under Solomon that the kingdom rose to its highest prominence and greatest wealth. You remember that the queen of Sheba came to see Solomon's empire and her assessment of it is that the half has not been told. Uh, she thought that the wealth and wisdom of Solomon and of Israel had been exaggerated and she realized it had been understated. But from that point on, it was all downhill. When Solomon died, his son Rehoboam ascended to the throne and because he was such a terrible and a wicked king, the kingdom was divided into half, into a northern kingdom and to a southern kingdom. But something that was common to both kingdoms is that the people pursued false gods. God sent prophets to both kingdoms, men like Jeremiah and Isaiah, Amos and, and others. But ultimately the northern kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrian empire. The southern kingdom, though it lasted a little bit longer, was ultimately captured and made into a vassal state by the Babylonians under a king named Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, in Psalm chapter 137, we see really um, the crux of what was going on and how tragic this was. Let me read to you Psalm 137, 1 through 4, which is a psalm about the Babylonian captivity. Its writer says, by the rivers of Babylon, when we sat down and wept, when we remembered Zion upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps for there our captors demanded of us songs and our tormentors mirth saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? One of my favorite pastors commenting on the book of Daniel says that really is the essence of the book of Daniel. How can God's people sing his songs in a foreign land? And dear friends, we live in a foreign land today. This world, this land is not our home. If you're a Christian, your home is in heaven. Scripture says we are sojourners and pilgrims. We're passing through and yet we're called upon to live lives that glorify Jesus bring honor into his name. Indeed, we're called to sing the songs of Zion in a foreign land. How couldn't we do that? Well, the book of Daniel answers that question. And so the strategy of the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar was whenever they conquered a people, they would search out the best and the brightest minds and students of the nobility. And then they would take them into Babylon indeed to the king's table and ultimately brainwash them and turn them over a period of three or four years into Babylonians and then re-inject them among the conquered peoples to do the king's bidding. It really was quite ingenious. But the first two verses of Daniel don't speak about Daniel and his friends so much as they speak about the king, Jehoiakim, who was defeated and the vessels of God which were brought out of the temple into the land of Shinar and placed in the house of Nebuchadnezzar's God. And that brings us to the second point of your outline, God's man in Satan's city. Now it may seem strange to us that God would judge his own people whom he clearly loved through a pagan nation that was even more wicked than Israel. Um, the, the Babylonians worshiped many gods probably the most heinous was a God named Marduk, which was their primary God. And you may remember from your study of world history that uh, this Marduk really was a manifestation of Satan. 
and some of the rituals and ceremonies that they did were certainly satanic in nature. These, these Babylonians worshiped idols. And of course, God had prohibited his people from having any God before him and the creation and the worship of idols and the first two commandments. But the understanding that the Babylonians had of deity in general is that every empire and every nation had its own God. And so Marduk was the God of Babylon and Yahweh, Jehovah, was the God of Israel. And so in their mind, because Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians defeated Israel and took their ceremonial um, implements from the temple, their vessels, it's called here, that certainly Marduk must be superior to Jehovah. So that seemed to be proven by the fact that their king was defeated, humiliated publicly, that their best and brightest were taken captive. And even they would think their God has been taken captive because they thought of gods in terms of artifacts and statues and images. Well, they're taken to the land of Shinar. That's a word we don't hear very often. In fact, uh, the last time we hear the, the land of Shinar mentioned was in Genesis chapter 11. It's right after the account of the flood and the ark has come to rest on Mount Ararat. Uh, the land dries out, the doors are open and Noah and his three sons and their families emerge from the ark and are instructed by God to repopulate the planet, to go forth and multiply and subdue the land. Really the same instructions that God gave Adam and Eve when he first created humanity, but they didn't do that. They stayed in that little area called the Valley of Shinar and they began to multiply and advance in technology and science. And one day they decided we're gonna build this tower, really which was the essence of idolatry. They wanted to be like God, just as our first parents did. And God confounded their language and dispersed them all over the world. Well, this heart of civilization uh, we call Babylon, this, this land of Shinar. Now, the, the point of the book of Daniel ultimately is that God is sovereign and man is not. And we see that is a very important phrase that's tucked in to verse two. Because remember I said, it seems like on first reading that God has lost his sovereignty, that Nebuchadnezzar and his gods are now sovereign because they've defeated Israel, God's chosen people and taken away their artifacts of worship. But look at verse two, it says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah into his hand. This is a work of God. Now in the New Testament, we say it like this, all things work together for good for those that love him. But to the uninformed, God and his people seem to have been defeated and his will thwarted. However, remember this from scripture, God always has a remnant of faithful ones. God always has a remnant of, of faithful believers. We mentioned Noah just a couple of moments ago. Remember that God looked at his creation and he saw that uh, all they did day and night is think up new ways to sin. The whole world was corrupt, the scripture says, and perverted in its thinking. Yet there was one faithful man, Noah, who served the Lord and God preserved Noah and his family because of that. We see Joseph taken off into captivity. Uh, and ultimately he would preserve the whole nation because among all of his wicked brothers, 
He was a remnant of righteousness. We see Elijah, that great prophet of the Lord, even when that wicked king and queen had introduced false worship and Baals and idols and false prophets by the hundreds into the land, he stood up alone, this voice crying in the wilderness, and he called them to repentance. And he stood for righteousness as he stood for the Lord. And, and Elijah felt so alone. He said, Lord, I'm the last one who loves you. God had to remind him there was a remnant. There were 7,000 others who had not yet bowed the knee to Baal. And, and here we come to the story of Daniel and his friends. Israel had turned its back as a whole upon God, but there was a few, there were a few men like Daniel and his three friends who had not bowed the knee or turned their back on God. And as Joseph said to his wicked brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Nebuchadnezzar meant it for evil. He meant to subdue and to humiliate the nation of Israel, but God meant it for good so that he could purge and uh, cleanse this nation and make it ready for the coming Messiah. Now the third and final point that I wanna make is uh, God's redemptive plan in history. Remember we said that the overarching theme of the book of Daniel is the sovereignty of God. The, the book of Daniel is 12 chapters in length and divides almost perfectly into equal halves. The first half, the first six books you will likely remember from childhood if you attended Sunday school at all. Uh, chapter one is the story of Daniel and his friends refusing the king's food and wine. And we're going to look at that story next Sunday, Lord willing. Chapter two tells the story of Daniel's interpreting King Nebuchadnezzar's dream when all the other wise men of the land were unable to do it. And the third chapter speaks of Daniel's friends whose names were changed in Babylon to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and how they were delivered through the fiery furnace by God's hand. And chapter four speaks of God taking away King Nebuchadnezzar's power for a season and then restoring it. Once again, showing that he raises up kings and he tears them down. God is sovereign. In chapter five, when there's a, a, another wicked king that comes on the scene, who did not recognize Daniel's God. God sends a, a hand to write on the wall to declare his sovereignty over history. And then in chapter six, probably most famously, when we think of the book of Daniel, you likely think of Daniel and the story of the lion's den. I remember the first real Bible I ever received. It was a Christmas present from my parents. And scattered throughout that Bible, were famous paintings of biblical scenes. And I remember as if it were today, opening that Bible and having it fall to that picture of Daniel standing in front of those lions with closed mouths. And I'm reminded of the sovereignty of God. Now, quite honestly, those first six chapters are some of the most enjoyable in the Bible to preach. Uh, we, we see examples of faithful men and their courage. We see God triumphing, triumphing over Satan and against evil. We see miraculous acts. We see angelic visitations and it is exciting and it is historical narrative and it's 
honestly easy to preach. And then we come to the second half of the book, chapters seven through 12, and it's quite a different story because in those six chapters, we find a series of apocalyptical visions that Daniel receives one after the other. Now, Daniel never held the office of prophet, so far as we can tell from the study of scripture, but God certainly gave him prophetic visions. He used him to write down uh, prophecy. So, so precise was his prophecy that it predicted the very year that the Messiah would be born, though Daniel lived six centuries before the time of Christ. Now, speaking of those uh, apocalyptical visions, the first is found in chapter seven. It's uh, the vision of the beast emerging from the sea. In chapter eight, we have a vision of a ram and a he-goat. Chapter nine, we, we have Daniel's interpretation of Jeremiah's prophecy of the 70 weeks. And then chapters 10 and 11, 12, really a synopsis of a revelation that God through an angel gave uh, to Daniel concerning the kings of the north and, and of the south. And so uh, I hope you are interested. One of my favorite pastors is David Miller. And when he gives an introduction, he always asks at the end of it, are you interested? Well, I hope you are because I certainly am interested and not only interested, I'm exciting about what the next three months of sermons have in store. Well, it's likely you are not as familiar with those apocalyptical visions as you are those six historical narrative stories in the first six chapters. But I want to encourage all of you to hang with us and uh, make it a priority over the next three months, if possible, make plans to watch and be here if you can for all of these sermons because they build one upon another. Now, I said we only had time to make an introduction today, but, but let me give you in conclusion uh, some parting thoughts as it relates to the study of this book or any other book of the Bible. The, the first is a caution, a warning, something that I say every time we start a series about a character from the Bible, and that is this. The book of Daniel is not about Daniel. When we study the book of Jonah, I said the book of Jonah is not about Jonah. When we study the Psalms, of David, I said the Psalms are not about David. And that's true of every other book of the Bible. The Bible is God's story. It should be read that way, it should be studied that way, and it certainly should be preached that way. The emphasis in all of our Old Testament and New Testament biographical sketches is how God uses these men and women for his glory. But with that said, we can certainly, as Christians, learn a lot about how to handle our own present historical circumstances from Daniel. Uh, let, me, let me give you several things that I think we're going to learn and be reminded of through this study. Number one, as Christians, we too are strangers in a strange land. As I said in my introduction, heaven is our home. We, like Daniel, live in a culture that is ultimately controlled by Satan. This world is not our home. Now, one day God is going to make right everything that was made wrong in this world because of sin's entrance, but that day is not now. Remember when we speak of God's kingdom, there is an already and a not yet. And some of the things that we're gonna study and particularly the eschatological portions of the book of Daniel are still yet to happen. 
And Daniel is a good place to go for eschatology because his record is pristine. In fact, Daniel's prophecies turned out to be so accurate concerning the Messiah that the critics of the Bible say they certainly could not have been written 600 years before Christ was born. It must have been added later to make the prophecies look accurate. But of course, Jesus himself endorsed the book of Daniel in the New Testament as coming from God and coming from the pen of this man, Daniel. Now, something else to be encouraged about and inspired through the book of Daniel uh, is like Daniel and his friends, we are in the minority. Jesus said of that road that leads to heaven, that it is a small gate and a narrow path and few there be that find it. That is in epic, every epic of history, those who follow Christ are fewer than those who don't. And we find ourselves today more and more in a minority with our biblical and Christian worldview. And yet we are called to live a life that is a life of light and salt in a dark and a dying world, just as Daniel was. And by the way, Daniel did it successfully for over 70 years. What an amazing record. Daniel was likely only 14 or 15 years old when he was hauled off away from everyone he knew and everything he knew. And yet he stood firm and bold and a man of prayer for 70 years we see his life consistently following the things of God. What an encouragement that is to our hearts. The third thing to remember here from Daniel is that there are those even in our own society. Please don't be naive. Please understand what I'm telling you. There are those in our own society today who are trying to reprogram us and our children to think like they do. There is always, however, a remnant that continues to follow the things of God. Just like Noah, just like uh, Elijah, and just like Daniel and his friends. Today, we need a remnant of God's people who will stand firm in the faith, in the face of all who seek to conform us into the image of this culture. God has never needed, friends, a majority to accomplish his purposes. Throughout the ages, he has chosen a humble few that are totally committed to his purposes and plans to change the world. That's true today as it ever was. And then finally, we find in the book of Daniel that as Christians, we can continue to serve our God and sing the songs of Zion because of the joy that is set before us. Now, God gave Daniel a great privilege, one that he's given only a few prophets through the years, and that is to see far into the future, to the other side of tragedy and to the other side of suffering where God ultimately prevails and wins. And because Daniel knew and stood firm on the truth that God is sovereign and he ultimately wins, he could spend a lifetime in a land that was not his own, surrounded by people who hated his God and surrounded and immersed in a culture that despised everything that he stood for. If Daniel could do it, friends, so can we, because what Daniel knew is what we know today, having the full canon of scripture that God wins in the end.
ultimately he will show himself to be sovereign. Let's thank him for that truth as we go to him in prayer. Now, Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the book of Daniel. Just studying it these past few months has encouraged my heart. Father, it's inspired me to lay aside the things of the world, to, to serve you with a white hot passion. Father, to, to pursue righteousness and holiness even while surrounded and being immersed in a culture that runs counter to everything that you are about. And Father, uh, I pray that that same inspiration and encouragement would, would be true of every member of our church. That Lord, that we, we would be bolstered to, to know that you don't need a grand army to accomplish your will. That you're looking for a few faithful, sold out, totally committed men and women, boys and girls who are willing to stand for truth, willing to hold up light in darkness, willing to be sought to preserve a decaying society. And Father, ultimately what we're praying for is revival. We're praying for awakening. We, we pray that your spirit would move across our city, our state and our nation, Lord, that uh, you would grant faith and repentance to millions, Lord, and that uh, we would turn to you away from the things of the world. And Father, we um, want to see that happen in our lifetime. And yet we're reminded you're sovereign. You control history. You know the end from the beginning, and we don't. But we know this. Your promise is that ultimately all things work together for good for those that love you. And so, Father, we declare our love for you. We declare our intent to walk closely with you. But, Lord, we know this is a dangerous and a dark and a world full of temptation. Guide us, Lord. Lead us. Teach us. Strengthen us by your word. Lord, I thank you for the unity that you've established here at First Baptist Keller. And Father, at the end of this 12-week study, I pray that unity and that uh, shared desire to glorify Jesus in Keller, Texas would burn hotter and brighter than ever before. And I pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.